I love preaching in this house. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come before you that you would still our hearts, that you would grant us clarity of vision, clarity of understanding. I pray, Lord, for clarity of speech, for clarity of expression. We pray, God, that in all of these things, as we read your scriptures, as we hear your word, that we would see you clearly, that we would embrace your kingdom more fully, and that we would come to grips with the good news of your gospel in every way. In Jesus' name. I'm speaking this morning on the good news on the cross. In the lead-up to Easter, we're doing a mini-series on the good news on the gospel. Stan spoke last week. Last week, there was a spoon. There was a, a flipsism. Uh, Stan spoke last uh, week on uh, the gospel and the kingdom. This morning, I'm going to be speaking about the gospel and the cross. And next week, Stan is going to pick up with the gospel and the resurrection. So the, the principal idea, the big idea that Stan spoke about last week is that the gospel is so much bigger than the, the message that we received to respond and give our lives to Jesus. That's an important part of it, but that's not the whole of it. It's a part of it, and I'd like to build on that this morning. The word gospel in the New Testament um, is a Greek word, evangelion. In order to, to properly appreciate and understanding the me understand the meaning of the word, I'm going too fast today, I'm going to slow right down. In order to properly understand and appreciate the meaning of a word, we need to understand it in its original context. So one of the difficulties, one of the challenges that we have when you look up a, a word in a thesaurus or in a dictionary, even in a Bible dictionary, is that it, it gives us the origin and the meaning of the word, but not necessarily in its context. So what I'd like to look at this morning is, how would somebody in the sandals of, of first century Israel have understood the word evangelion? What would that have mean to, meant to them? And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to read you a short passage, which was a happy birthday message to uh, an emperor, Roman emperor, Octavian, also known as Augustus, this was written in 9 BC, just before the birth of Jesus, and it was at a very interesting time in Roman history. The Roman Empire, which spanned centuries, had just come through a very bloody civil battle, and the emperor who'd emerged victorious was Augustus. And uh, whilst there was resistance in Rome to deifying the emperor, because it had implications, Certainly, as you spread further out towards the outer edges of the empire, it became more and more common and, and in fact, required to regard Caesar, the emperor, as a god in flesh, god who had arrived on the earth to reign over what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which spread throughout the empire. Well, that was the theory. So this is, this is the happy birthday message from a place um, in modern-day Turkey. It's called Prayini, and this is how it reads. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, 
both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our expectations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the Evangelion, the glad tidings, the good news for the world that came by reason of him, which Asia resolved in Smyrna. So, so here we have an inscription. This is found in, in the city in Turkey of the good news of Augustus. In fact, the good news of his birthday. And there's a declaration that he is the God in flesh. There's no hope that anybody will ever surpass him. No one past, no one in the present, no one in the future. Anybody using the word evangelion at the time of Jesus' birth was looking for trouble. Because what they were doing was they were setting themselves up as a rival to Caesar, God in the flesh. They were setting themselves up as the one who declared a kingdom greater than the empire of Rome which spanned the known world at the time. It is into this context that Jesus, in, in Mark chapter 1, um, is recorded as kicking off his ministry. This is what it says. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, the evangelion of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the evangelion. Jesus was looking for trouble. Jesus was looking for trouble. There was, at the time, an expectation among devout Jews, those who believed in, in God and were expecting the Messiah, that around the time of Jesus, the Messiah would arise. The uh, period of weeks spoken of in Daniel ha had come to an end, and all were eagerly awaiting this Messiah, this king in the line of David, who was going to come and rescue Israel from its troubles. And as a consequence, people groups rose up, rebellions rose up, and some proclaimed that they were the Messiah. We read about that in, in Acts and in other texts. That, that some rose up and said, we're going to overthrow the kingdom of Rome by force. I'm going to get back to that in a little while. But certainly, it, there, there was uh, um, an atmosphere, there was a, uh, uh, a feeling, an expectation, an intense expectation, that the Messiah was going to come. And even the emperor took that seriously. We, that's why Herod, when the three wise men came at the time of the birth of Jesus, Herod said, well, show me this king that I may come and worship him with a sharp edge of a sword, no doubt. And, and the three wise men, not being taken in by that con, being, being guided by God to depart by another route, uh, evade the plan of Herod and Herod, in fury, kills all the children, all the male children, under the age of two in Jerusalem and in Israel, and in the area of what was known as, as Palestina. So both the, the devout Jews and the reigning Romans were expecting an uprising of sorts. That's the context in which Jesus is born. And that's the context in which Jesus starts proclaiming his evangelion. Now, there are at least four strands in the major story, the meta-narrative of the scriptures, which, which we could look at. There's God in the cosmos, which starts with the Garden of Eden, 
That's a plot line that runs throughout the Bible right to the end of, of Revelation, and, and in fact through Revelation to today. There's the story of, of God in Israel. That's a plot line that we follow through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. There's the plot line of God and the church, which we pick up in the New Testament and carries to us, with us to this day. There's the plot line of, of God and you. That's, that's one of the plot lines of this big story. And there are times where these plot lines are interwoven and they intersect and they, they cross one another, and sometimes they look like they're quite far apart. But, but what I'd like to focus on today is two plot lines. And we're going to see how they converge at the moment of the cross. Those two plot lines converge in the Evangelion, in the good news, on the cross, as the story of God and the cosmos, God and all humanity, and not only humanity, but all that he's created, and God and Israel, the, the crowning of the king of Israel, converge in the cross. That's what I'm going to look at today. The um, Hebrew word that is the equivalent of gospel, of good news, is the word beser. Um, also, another form of it is beserah. It, it means royal proclamation of news that changes the world forever. Beser. So that's what would have been in Jesus' mind as he was proclaiming the Evangelion. He'd have had in mind a royal proclamation that changes the world forever. When, when David was proclaimed king and, and Saul was no longer alive, Saul had died, the royal proclamation, the Beser, would have looked like this. The king is dead, long live the king. Because Saul had died, and David was now going to reign in his stead. That was good news. That was Beser. That was the Evangelion of the time. So when we read of the gospel in the New Testament... What we should be, have in our minds is that this is a royal proclamation that changes the world forever. How does that tie to the cross? Well, I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians. Paul has some interesting, interesting things to say about it. Before I read it, Paul deals with the, the concept of the gospel many times in his letters. And, and the interesting thing is, he doesn't say the same thing every time. It's actually slightly different every time because he's adapting the idea of what the gospel is to his audience and to his context. Something we should do as well. But the, the central theme is that this is, is incredibly important news. It's a proclamation of, of royal news of a kingdom that changes the world forever. This is how he records it in 1 Corinthians. Now, I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, the evangelion I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. So for today's sermon, I'm going to zero in on verse 3 only. For I deliver to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. This begs the question, what Scriptures is Paul referring to? Well, he can't be referring to the New Testament, 
Because whilst some of the New Testament had been written by the time that Paul wrote this letter, some of it hadn't. And, and that which had been written hadn't yet been compiled into the New Testament. So when he, he refers here to scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament exclusively. We're going to look at a few of those scriptures which Paul regarded as the gospel, which is the royal proclamation which changed the world. Now, I'm going to speed through some of this text because I just don't have the time and space to deal with all of it with the attention that it deserves, which is a great tragedy. But I'm going to, I'm going to highlight certain elements of it, and then I'm going to draw your attention as to how those elements relate to the cross. You ready? Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's, that's ambiguous. High and lifted up means uh, uh, held in, in high regard. It can mean um, exalted. It can mean given praise. But it can also mean lifted up like on a cross. So, so Jesus, the servant, according to this text, is going to be high and lifted up, exalted, but also held up high on a cross, just like the, the bronze serpent was held up in the wilderness with the people of Israel in the Exodus, and all who looked upon him, upon the bronze serpent, were healed. I wish I had time to go into that, but I don't. Um, he goes on to say, verse 14, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. This is a description of Jesus on the cross, that his body would be like a plowed field. That, that he would be so disfigured with his beard torn out and his head beaten and bruised and his, his back flayed open by the cat of nine tails as flesh and skin were ripped out to the bone. That he didn't look like a human being anymore. That's what this is talking about. And it says, because of that, he will sprinkle many nations, which means that the blood from his body, symbolically as a sacrifice, as the Lamb of God, would go not over, only over the people of Israel, but to all the nations of the world. And it's, it's right there. It's right there in the text. Let me continue. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them, they see. And that which is not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Just, just before I pause there. You know when we see pictures of Jesus, kind of vogue Jesus, blue eyes, blonde hair, chiseled abs? Not true. Not true. There was nothing about the appearance of Jesus that would draw men to him. Nothing. He was a Jewish man living in the Middle East, and he looked very ordinary. And that was really important because actually every human being in history had to relate to him. This, this is not the cover of, of Vogue Jesus. It's, it's, ju it's just we, we have imposed on the idea of God an idea that is completely foreign to the Bible. It's just not there. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus on the cross was pierced time and time again. His, his crown was a crown of thorns. His forehead was pierced. So, so it represented all the stuff that goes on in our minds that torments us. His body was pierced because he had um, nails through his arms and through his feet. His side is pierced by a a spear. There's no thing that that pierces you that he's not experienced. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul writes of this and says that Jesus became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. That was the thing that the, the Romans marveled at as Jesus was, was tried and crucified is that he didn't defend himself. He could have, and he chose not to. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, which is exactly right. He was taken away by the Roman oppressor, and judgment was pronounced upon him uh, by Pilate. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked. Remember the the brigands on on the cross with him? And with a rich man, that's Joseph of Arimathea, in his death, though he, was, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Um, I, I wish I had time to deal with this in more detail, but, but I, I, I want to rush to my point. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. The prophecies fulfilled by Jesus on the cross, and this is only some of them, are chillingly accurate. It's inconceivable that a human mind could have written this centuries before Jesus arrived on the earth. It's inconceivable. And yet they all line up in the cross. But is there not more at play here? This certainly establishes that the gospel, as foretold by the ancient scriptures, deals with the atoning death of Jesus for the sins of Israel and the sins of all the nations. But isn't there more? Isn't there perhaps more that's happening on the cross in terms of the Evangelion, in terms of the glad tidings, in terms of the news that changes the world forever? Let's look at the Psalm of David, Psalm 22. I'm going to read most of the Psalm, then focus on one or two aspects that are relevant. Psalm 22 starts with these words. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you heard that before? On the cross. That's exactly right. In Matthew, those words are recorded, and we're going to look at that. But, but when, when Jesus uttered those words on the cross... He wanted those who heard him 
to think of Psalm 22. And we're going to read this. Psalm 22 is a, is a psalm of David. David, um, the psalmist, also King David, and Jesus the Messiah coming in the line of David. This is a messianic psalm. From verse 12. Many bulls encompass me, the strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. Very briefly, I'm poured out like water. My, my, my joints are, are, are out. So on the cross, the way the crucifixion worked is, is that the, the body was, was hung up and, and the, the crucified would have their joints pulled out, but their bones weren't broken unless the, the executioners wanted to sp- speed up the death by, by breaking their legs. And the reason for that is because all of the weight of the body was on the, the nail through the feet, and that's what helped them to breathe. They'd have to push down on that and, and be able to um, fill their lungs and, and expel their lungs. And it says here that his heart is like wax. What's wax like? What's wax like? It's like thick, congealed, but it also runs. And the reason for that is that Jesus, um, you remember when the spear pierced his side and, and blood ran out mixed with water? You remember that? The reason for that is because Jesus, you'll recall, was carrying the cross, actually just the cross bars. He couldn't carry the whole cross. No one could carry it. It's too heavy. He was carrying the cross bars, strapped to his arms through the streets of Jerusalem, and he fell. And as he fell, he couldn't hold his arms out because they were tied to the stake. And as he fell on his sternum, on his chest, and as that happened, so, so doctors tell us, he would, have, he would have, ex- have received a contusion across his heart. And the, the veil around his heart, his perineum, would have filled with a mixture of blood and water. And, and one of the prevail, prevailing theories is when he died on the cross, what happened is that his heart gave way. In a real sense, Jesus died of a broken heart. It goes on to say, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. Dogs is a, is a reference in the Old Testament, a slang term for Gentiles. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones because that's what happens when you stretch out on a cross, the, the ribs become evident. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and my clo- for my clothing they cast lots. This is exactly fulfilled in the New Testament, in the Gospels. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. And so it continues. But I'm going to focus... Uh, Actually, let me just look at the last few verses because it's so amazing. It says, It shall be told, in verse 30, of the Lord to the coming generations, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Who's the people yet unborn? It's us. It's the church. That he has done it. So Jesus cried out on the cross. His last words were, it is finished. It is done. Actually, what he was crying out, it's been translated in the Greek, tetelestai, the goal at which all of the scriptures were aiming has been fulfilled. 
or slightly differently, there's nothing more to be done. He's done it. It's completed. It's perfected. Now I'm going to look at verse um, 14, very briefly, actually 12. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. The reference to Bashan is, is an important point that would not have been lost on an ancient audience. It's kind of, we blip over it because what does that mean to us? But Bashan was the region, it's a mountain range, Bashan was a region at the base of Mount uh, Homan that was um, believed to be the, the place where the heavenly realm and the physical realm intersect. It's here where heavenly beings, the lowercase s, sons of God, descended to the earth and defiled humanity. It was known colloquially as the gates of hell. That's where Jesus stood and asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, I say that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds and says, heaven... Uh, Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. I say to you, you are Peter, a stone, and on this rock, Bashan, Hermon, the mountain. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the place where the heavenly realm and the earthly realm intersect, shall not prevail against it. See, gates are a defensive position. Gates don't advance, the church advances. Jesus was saying, the bulls of Bashan, the, the heavenly beings who have fallen out of order, who have taken power that doesn't belong to them, are defeated on the cross. Because on this space, and in the same mountain range, I might add, is where the cross was, Golgotha. Jesus was putting, when he had this discourse with Peter, Jesus was putting the powers and principalities on notice, the king is coming. The king is coming. In a very real sense, that was an evangelion moment. He was making a royal declaration that the world would change forever. It would never be the same. Now, there is another time when the heavenly realm and the earthly realm intersect and, and the edges that are usually clear become a little frayed I'm going to read about it in Matthew verse 27 chapter 27 verse 45 now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour in, in Luke I prefer the way it's stated in Luke in Luke it says um, the light of the sun failed. So over Jerusalem, there was, there was, it was pitch dark. The sun disappeared. Well, the light of the sun disappeared. The sun was there, but it, couldn't see it. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Invoking Psalm 22. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is called, calling Elijah, and one of them 
at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Do you know what that was? In, in ancient times, they didn't have toilet paper. So what they would do in, in, in communal baths, this is a typical thing in, in Greek and Roman cities, they'd have a sponge on the end of a stick that they would dip in vinegar and wipe their backsides with it. That's what they were doing to Jesus. Um, this wasn't kindness. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and, took, and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So when God breaks in, even those who don't believe will declare the Evangelion. What happened in the physical realm when Jesus died was truly terrifying. The sun failed. Uh, Jerusalem was plunged into darkness. And the rocks were split. What was happening in the natural was a physical reflection of what was happening in the supernatural. Jesus, the light of the whole world, had been snuffed out. Jesus, the light who was there when creation was spoken into being, was darkness. Jesus, the rock, the foundation on, on, on which the, the church was to be built, was split and broken. A thick darkness descended like the, the ninth plague in Exodus. And people would have been crying out for their loved ones in terror, not knowing what was happening. And, and that was the plague before the killing of the firstborn. See all these scriptures, little tendrils connecting. And yet, and yet, there was something that was happening. The, the, the tombs gave up their dead. You know, it says in the scriptures that it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. That's not what happened to these people. These people rose from the dead, not having yet faced judgment, and later died again. So, so what was happening? What was, was the scripture wrong? No, this was a disruption of, of the natural order of things because heaven and earth intersected on the cross. It was the supernatural equivalent of the splitting of the atom and the shockwaves ran throughout the cosmos. This was an Evangelion moment. This was a royal announcement and the world would never be the same again. See, what happened on the cross was a foretaste of what will happen when Jesus gathers all things in himself at the consummation of the age, and we all stand before the one, and will know death no more. What looked like a moment of utter despair and greatest defeat was the very moment of triumph. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians. He says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
See, things are hidden in the Old Testament. We see it with the, the benefit of hindsight, with the light of Jesus shining upon it. But, but others couldn't, because if they did, they would never have crucified Jesus. Jesus on the cross was the moment of triumph. Jesus on the cross was the moment that, that the powers and principalities were ultimately defeated. Both on earth and in heaven. I'd like you to think about this. There's a moment on the cross just before Jesus' death where there's a, there's a thief, a murderer, or they're, they're described different ways the, in, the, in the Gospels. They're called thieves, murderers, and brigands. There's, there's a guy on the left and a guy on the right. And the Gospels describe that at the beginning, you read this in Matthew's Gospel, both of them were hurling insults at Jesus. And they say, if you were the Son of God, surely you could save yourself. Get on with it. And, and right at the end, you see that, that one of the brigands, I like that word and I'll explain why in a moment, turns to Jesus and says, when you enter your kingdom, remember me. See, the word brigand, it depends who's writing the history. What had happened, as I told you earlier, was that this was a time when there was an expectation of an arising of a Messiah. And there were zealots, there were groups of people who'd formed to rebel against the Roman overlords, to restore the nation of Israel. And these brigands would, would come in and launch raids and would kill people and would rob to, to, uh, to finance their endeavors. And these two guys who were hanging with Jesus were those guys. They were those who were trying to overthrow the Roman Empire in the flesh and install a kingdom in the flesh. And that's why they were crucified, because crucifixion was such a terrible punishment that it, ha it, it was reserved for only the very worst, like those who committed treason against the Roman Empire. So look at the parallel. Jesus, the one who willingly lays down his life for the freedom of his people, and for the, the, the installation of the king of Israel himself to rescue Israel and all nations from the bondage of the oppressor in the natural and in the supernatural, hangs next to somebody who gave his life, killing others, to achieve freedom for their people and the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. See, what was on display on the cross was God's way and man's way. God's way and man's way. Man's way is kill, destroy, at all costs. Jesus was, I will surrender my life and pay whatever it costs. So there's, a, there's a living contrast and a dying contrast. And here, Jesus says, uh, the guy says to him, and he gets it, he gets it. It's a moment of metanoia, of he, he, it's a moment of revelation where this brigand says to him, this freedom fighter, this terrorist, depending on which side of the, the, the aisle you, you sit, says to Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. See, he got it. He recognized that he was in the presence of a king. He didn't say, remember me when you get into heaven. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. He got it. And Jesus responds in this way. He says, You'll be with me in paradise. 
today. So the kingdom of heaven looks nothing like the kingdoms of this earth. Everything's upside down. Everything's inside out. You want to you rule in the kingdom of God? Serve everyone. You want to you take ground for the king? Don't kill, die. This kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the cross, is that Jesus was prepared to die for us. But more than that, In John 3.16, we read this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I'm going to read this with the, the word world in its original Greek form. Listen to this. For God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life, Zoe, um, Zoe life, so life which is not merely biological, but a life which is a taste of the age to come in which God reigns. Zoe Aenos, the, the life of the age to come. For God did not send his son into the cosmos to condemn the cosmos, but in order that the cosmos might be saved through him. See, Jesus' death on the cross had cosmic implications. It had implications for the entire order. Jesus on the cross created the space where God will ultimately usher in a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible says that that whole creation is groaning in anticipation for the revelation of the sons of men, sons of God. And on the cross that happened, the earth groaned. There was an earthquake and the, the rocks split. There's a physical representation of that reality. In Colossians, Paul writes that one of the consequences of the cross is that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is Jesus. The royal proclamation of the cross is that there's a king on the throne and he is Jesus. And we, as ambassadors of the king, get to represent that kingdom now by living lives that look quite different to the rest of the world. The royal proclamation is this. The king is dead. Long live the king. Amen.